Hello, listeners. Listeners this week. <laughs> because we've got no video. And you don't have to snap. We don't have to snap. Can I snap any rate? Well, I'm usually the snappy one. Snap, snap, snap. <laughs> I like you snapping. I, I think that this is perfect timing because... What do, you, what do you mean I perfect have, timing? Oh, that there's I, no video. That there's no video because I have got a sister disease to the Rona. <laughs> She's got pre-Rona. I have one of the Ronas. <laughs> she has a blocked nose. Hey, it's a bit worse than that. It's a blocked nose. I haven't been at work almost all week. I've been a hot mess. A hot mess. A no, cold you mess. haven't. You've been great. You've been fine. I've been, been sad about your oh, sniffly nose, but that's like, it. It's because of all this lockdown, I haven't been sick for so long because I've been like lathered in antibacterial <laughs> goodness. Yeah. That I haven't been sick. I know. And you saw the you saw your your nephews. Oh, I bet and they, they can, give it yeah, to me. From the childcare centres. My baby boys. We no. did a lot of rah because they like to be dinosaurs. Like to be dinosaurs. And we do rah. How, how old are they? The boys are almost three, two and a half. They'll be three in September. Wow. I forgot. I, everyone says, oh, how old are they when I talk about them? And I go, I don't know. <laughs> you idiot. <laughs> They're so beautiful. Oh, my God. They They're cute. just so cute. I mean, cute. other people's children always are, though, aren't they? Yes, because you can give them back. That's right. That's right. Yes. So, yes. Yeah, so, no, I'm so in, she got I'm it from in full sookie And she's outfit. suddenly in a plushy. My plush dressing her gown. Her plush dressing gown. And my animal print leggings and my uggies. Yes, she's very gorgeous and, in a snuggled and up And my way. hair's all gone up into a little bun so there's no ha- hair cute. driving me crazy. And I'm covered in aches and pains and it's glory. Yes. And if you're not already using the Flu Tracker app, I would like to suggest to all Australians What's that you. What's the Flu Tracker app? You're in it. You just don't know that you're in it. There's this brilliant, there's this brilliant flu tracking thing that Australia does. Oh, this is Australian government. I don't know. Rona tracker. Government. No, 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 no. It's not the Rona tracker. It's not Rona. And nothing to do with Corona. It's to do with flu tracking. But how do I know? It I'm tracks in the it? flu flu symptoms and 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 in Australia. So you can you sign up for it. It's all online. You don't have an app. There's no app. You just sign up for it on on the internet, and they email you. And then you put in any symptoms that you or any members of your family may have had that week for flu symptoms. So. so last week we're all fine. This week we're a hot mess. But so there's no flu. We're not. No, no one's no, got no, a temperature. No, it's just they, the symptoms are like: do you have shortness of breath, runny nose, sore throat? Like it's that stuff. Temperature, okay. blah blah blah. And now they've added: have you had a, a Rona test? Yay or nay? Obviously. So what's this got to do with episode thirteen? Well, I'm just encouraging our listeners <laughs> to download. No, to go to the Flu Tracker Australia website and bloody do their bit. That's very good. Should I write that down for the show notes? Yeah, go on. All right. Okay. That seems like a good idea. Write that shit down. Wonderful. So you're not feeling so well. We've I'm, established that. I'm feeling that. a bit crap. Everything you're writing else, everything down. What else? Is everything else good? <sighs> yeah. Um, we have had mm. – we're, we're trying some people out for a custom service role. Do you fun. know what? I put an ad in there, Atkins Pro Group – which was me just with a bit of verbal diarrhea. As is like you're doing right now. <laughs> Fuck you. But saying I wanted someone who likes dogs and savoury food because Karen Horn, at the Karen H and I and Laura at the front desk are all savoury food addicts. Yes. So we like a cracker. We like a chip. We like a over-salted nut. 
We, 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 they, these are key elements of our customer service delivery modes. Right. And um, so, yeah, so I've had all these hilarious CVs come to me going, please help me with my, you know, country cheese cracker addiction. <laughs> <laughs> and people sending me photos of their dogs and stuff. It's really lovely. It's very cute. And it's really lovely to be looking for customer service people because – you know, it's a tough role. You can never role. have enough of them. I know. Because really we chew through them like tissues. <laughs> poor people. Poor people. <laughs> it's a tough role. It's not that everyone's yelling at them. It's just that they balance that thing between a wonderful customers who don't understand how it works inside the building and that's understandable that they don't understand well, the way the world is. Yeah. And the people in the back who are like, they got to yeah. get it right to and get also, it done. And also because we've been, as a business, I think a bit of a sleeping giant for the last 25 years. <laughs> and... Um, and really, a lot of our systems are are pretty broken and antiquated, and so there's a lot of oh well that that machine over there we glue back together with a little piece of sticky tape every week, and so I think customers are like, what do you mean you can't send me my invoice when I want it? And service staff are like, how is this so far removed from like what I do in a you Kmart? Know, the best the best metaphor. Um, when my grandfather was hovering around the lab and he would... You he think w- he hovered, do you? Well, he that's how he was treated, like a god. Yeah, yeah that's right, <laughs> he hovered around. So he was in the front shop and, of course, he could never stand seeing someone waiting and then there was someone there and he's like, oh... Was this before or after he swooped an armful of film into his bag without <laughs> asking? Because we had cu- yeah, we had customers dobbing in. There's a, bur- uh, there's a thief in the front shop <laughs> stealing... There's a crazy old man with huge ears <laughs> just grabbing all grabbing the film. Grabbing all the film. No, no, he was... Um, he'd like... He couldn't help... Wait, he couldn't stand seeing people waiting and he would go up and try and serve them. Oh, and so he'd say, I'm oh, yes. And he would li- not listen to anything, but he'd pick up on one word and he'd go, all oh, right, okay. <laughs> so so then he would then go and stand on the step that's just – because the back area is like one step lower than the f- custom service. He'd stand on the step and he'd yell with his hands around his <laughs> mouth, has anyone got the Port Augusta job? <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, sure, there's probably one customer at that time having a job in from Port Augusta, but none of the production staff would know anything about that. But your father maintained that tradition because he used to serve people and then the staff would have to spend like a week trying to work out what the hell he wrote on the piece of paper. So so your point, like, yes. What's our point? Customer service. Customer service. Yes, you have to be in Adelaide. All you people in Sydney wishing you could spend like 200 grand and live in a mansion in Adelaide. You can, but you have to move to Adelaide. <laughs> yeah. So, so the, the the point is, those systems we're talking about is what's yes. going. And, yes. And all the lack systems. thereof. Yeah. And so we're also working on some software for our internal uh, order it's tracking going and to that be kind of stuff. Literally, the most exciting thing on the planet. Very excited about that. I mean, it's going to be literally the most boring thing on the planet to do. No, but once wonderful. it's done, and I've been, it'll on, be super I've been dealing exciting. with this Irish company now, talking to them. This is where we <laughs> now say, do not make do any racist Irish jokes. Can I do the, no, can I do the accent? Though? Oh, sweet Jesus. Do you know what? You can only do the accent because they're white. Okay. Okay. Yeah, okay. But they, he says, he says, he says, I got a roll of film. <laughs> <laughs> what we've worked out is that a lot of your weird I things love it. that you say. So you say film and you say, say theatre. I don't. You I don't. do. And these are Irishisms that and the other you thing have he says, pulled out of thin fucking air as far as about, I can tell. We're talking about columns in a database, right? And he says, columns. <laughs> to be sure, to be sure. Hey, you. <laughs> I'm not supposed to do that. Anyhow, so let's get on to track because this is a podcast. It's episode 13 and we've interviewed someone really interesting yeah. for this podcast. And we were talking about babies. 
And we're talking we're about, about baby. We were earlier, and we were talking about um, my grandfather who since passed away. <laughs> And Helen, our episode 13 guest. We didn't guest, watch him pass away, though, thank God. No, we God. didn't. Our episode 13 guest is someone who's dealt with beginning and end of life in her photography and her, I don't know, her, I wouldn't say spiritual guidance in any way because she's a very spiritual person, but she's not um, She's not a spiritual guide in any way or photographer. She's a bit of a, like, she's a bit of a goddess. She's a goddess I feel like because she can walk that line. Yeah, but she's also like she can I live have in that this, liminal space between this, life yes, and death. Yes, 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 that too. But Which is I have this like complete obsession with women in their mid fifties. Women between their mid fifties and mid sixties are like my favorite kind of women because they just know their shit and they're just over it. They're just like I'm just going to do what I want. And I'm going to be happy, and you all can get fucked. And it is just about the best thing ever. And she, I remember when we went. The last AIPP thing that I went to in South Australia, and she brought her daughter, and she and I just went on this like tangent about femininity and masculinity and the power of aging, and it was just glorious. And I feel like I just need to get really drunk with her one day, I, and no. she could like sub in for my therapist. She reminds me of my therapist. No, she. Well, the thing is with Helen, she is completely. I think she just gets what it takes to get through life. And, I mean, she probably doesn't feel that way personally because well, no one ever feels sorted. I suppose because she's an, a nurse person. Yes. She has that glorious kind of yeah, yeah. get on and do it practicality that yeah. nurses have that I've, I have been cared for by a Mesquillian nurses and they are the goddesses of the universe. So, yeah, she's, she's a very impressive woman and um, – and, you know, she talks about heartfelt, which is – which sort of started me thinking about um, corporate virtue signalling. Signalling. You know, like there's a lot of corporations coming out and doing this black all Black Lives Matter and all this kind of hoo-ha um, and trying to kind of score points with the community by suddenly saying, oh, you know what, we've just worked out we never hired a black person once in our entire life and we're, like, really sorry and we're totally going to go and hire some black people now. And and we are, we have been heavily involved in Heartfelt, which um, supply f- free photographers. Free photography. Yep. For people who are experiencing a death of a child. It's a little bit broader than just the death of a child. Yeah. But a, a simple way of thinking about it is – a stillborn, a stillborn baby, a, lo- a lot of the work, and yeah. yeah, and it's a big part of the grieving process <laughs> yeah. for that. Yep, and we, I think everybody knows someone who's had a stillbirth in their lives, and we certainly know our fair share. And, um, but what we've never really done is advertised that fact, and we don't. Well, that's the deal. Well, it's the not first the deal. Rule, the, well, not the first rule of Fight Club is don't talk about Fight Club. <laughs> Um, Fuck with. No, no, I'm just saying that heartfelt. There's a big thing about heartfelt is, is it's it's not an, a marketing opportunity. Correct. And Helen and I talk about that a hell of a lot. Yeah, and I think in the, it's in interesting. Um, just in the the just in the in the because I'm in this universe of thinking about all the stuff that's happening in overseas at the moment still, and I just think it's interesting because it is. You know, and there's all these celebrities giving money and all the rest of it. Going, oh, I've just given forty million dollars, which is only a fifteenth of my fortune to this organization and it's 
you know, I think there's something to be said for doing good without asking for praise for doing good and for doing the thing and not singing and dancing about doing the thing. And that's what I think heartfelt photographers do so well. Oh, they do so well. And Helen particularly. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's an amazing organisation and, um, yeah, it's a really fascinating – um, thing that she she's chosen to kind of delve into and not many people can sit with the discomfort of that that sort of um, thin line between um, being alive and not being alive anymore and it's certainly I find it really quite a struggle to to even to listen to the podcast because I I mean I watched your your grandmother die, and that was so traumatic for me. I couldn't imagine. Mm. But then there are nurses who do that all day long. Like yeah. that's yeah. what they do. Well, Helen would contend that um, uh, that we need to be exposed to more. Of yeah, it, and and, and, and it shouldn't have it. been traumatic for me. But yeah. I think because it was so alien that it was, yeah. um, and so. And, yeah, and also I think also partially because I don't have extended family in Australia that I haven't had to have any – I haven't had to do any caring of our elderly parents, any grandparents or any cousins or aunties or <coughs> – pardon me – any of that stuff. Whereas you've had – Jesus, you've had 40 million old people and they're all dropping like flies every 10 minutes in your bloody family. We've, we've got a big spell of no one, thankfully. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, let's get these people into listening to Helen. Yes, you know, listen to Helen – Listen to Helen and, and enjoy. And be impressed and terrified. And, and think about her and send her your love. Yes. Uh, because she loves people and she likes she's, contact. She's quite the impressive creature. And she's creature. very important to be <coughs> someone to be watching and following. So yeah, cough button. No. <laughs> Just don't cough. Just don't cough. <laughs> <laughs> That's not very gentle right. and kind and loving as you're supposed to be as my husband. Catch you after the podcast. I don't care, Paul. You know me. I'm pretty cash. That's what I love about you, Helen. Um, (laughs) So I'm on the Skype now with Helen Roberts, who uh, we've we've worked together over the years in varying different capacities, both as a client, supplier, and um, and also within the Australian Institute of Professional Photography, and with Heartfelt, and with uh, a few other little side projects, and. I really, really, really wanted to include Helen in the conversation uh, of photography and living with photography and, and how photography has become, you know, a part of people I know's lives because I think you've got a perspective on photography and a perspective on life that there's no one else in my orbit like you, Helen. <laughs> uh, and um, and it's, it is, it is wonderful. And I know people who know you will understand uh, where, where you come from, but you know you, you are taking photography and life in a, in a direction, and and your interest in life in a direction that's quite uncommon and and extremely moving. And I'm dying to talk to you about all those sort of aspects. So let's start with an easy question: Why photography, and where did photography come into your life? I think my photography. The interest started when um, I was in Kangaroo Island as a really small child. My dad had quite an interest in photography and he had a really old Pentax with a external light meter on the top and I can't quite remember the model but 
I was intrigued by all the dials and the buttons and the fact that you'd wait a few weeks for a film and then you'd get photos back. It was a, a thrilling experience. Um, and I really progressed from there until I got my first, the first Canon digital camera for my 30th birthday from my now husband. And so that was a long time ago. Wow. <laughs> Well, so, so there was a gap in there where photography was just something in your life that you muddled with, but it's, it really didn't get you into gear until Dave gave you, yeah. Correct, yeah, yeah. And so the evolution of my photography, I got very interested in digital photography and I guess over the course of the next 10 years I made a switch in careers from being a paediatric intensive care nurse to becoming – well, I didn't call myself a professional photographer at the beginning, but essentially that's what I was doing because I was asking people to give me money for my work <laughs> and it sort of developed from there. Um, and I, I always thought of myself a little bit like, you know, a mum with a camera, but I got used to the idea that that was okay and I was eventually happy enough with the work that I produced. Um, yeah, and yes, my photography has evolved. So why did you why why did you back out of the paediatric care nurse? I had been a paediatric intensive care nurse for about 28 years wow. and I was job sharing for the last 10 of that. I was um, I was then during my job share a sing, single parent and I so I I got an interest in photography in over that course of 10 years. Um and eventually I couldn't do everything. I couldn't be a paediatric intensive care nurse, a photographer, a mother, a wife. Dave had a very busy job. I did most of the work around the house and so something had to give. And nursing was what gave, which was quite a change to my life and, and a loss at that time. It had been such a huge part of my life for the last, the previous sort of 35 years. Yeah, mm. it's almost, it's like... I'd imagine, I'd imagine that the the sort of work you were doing there, when it was over, it was over, and you left, and that was done. Whereas being a running a business, being a photographer, you've got, you know, you then worry about marketing and you know all the other yeah. stuff. But what, did you find though the the paediatric intensive care you were bringing that home, and so you were that weighed on you heavily as well uh, beyond that. I think because I'd been working for so long, I had learned to manage um, the work-life balance. I always found, though, after a particularly difficult day, it was helpful to debrief with the staff at work, but also to come home and debrief with a husband that understood. And I could get resume normal activities um, almost the next day or after a couple of days. Um, and I think I would never have wanted it not to have, have felt it because I feel that um, as a human being, if we are not saddened or um, upset by the losses that we see, and particularly with obviously children dying, that... Um, it, was, it would have been time to go a lot long before that if I had okay. dehumanised myself. Um, yeah. And so learning to manage it was, was important. And I always, always found that in that, that process of 
um, grief, I guess it is, um, I, I gained a perspective and an understanding, well, a perspective and a, I guess an understanding of the complexities of life and yeah, it's death. Really, it's the pointy end to paediatric um, care at that. So it really is the pointy end. It's the thing that, you know, no one really wants to think about and and to, so to, to sort of be able to ride that wave and, you know, to, to, to take a, even a day or two to recover from a day at work, that's a really, you know, that doesn't sound like a great idea. I mean, it, it, you said if you didn't carry that grief, it wasn't, you wouldn't be human and it was a better thing to be able to carry that, but it doesn't make for going back to work the next day. Oh, it, no, I, I could go back to work the next day and often there'd be a period of time over the course of three or four days where it'd be busy and stressful and um, but I, I never felt like I didn't manage, you know, I could walk back into the environment and provide the same care and love to my families and patients that I did the day before. Um, yeah, it, you just learn how to process it. Yeah, that's really really interesting. I, I mean, from an outsider, I can't I can't imagine how that works. But also to to have uh, you know had a, a little bit to do with with the heartfelt group. Now, heartfelt. When did that come into your radar? Was that was there something similar to that? Because it's it's only been around for what twelve years or so. Heartfelt. Yeah, yeah. So before that, there was other stuff happening because as a lab, we saw people like yourself who were helping families who pass us a Polaroid um, and we had to scan the Polaroid and then we made the, the, the baby look as good as you possibly could with a little bit of digital retouching. This is late 90s, you know. Um, so were you aware of that stuff happening then and the, and the value of or the need for some sort of a service there? I, I wasn't aware of it happening at the time, Paul, but in retrospectively... You know, when the first, oh, I remember we had a one megapixel camera, a little Kodak job in ICU, and we would take photos for families. Um, and I remember I have an image on my photo wall at home and I call it the first heartfelt photo I ever took. And I still remember the family and I still remember the little bubby's name. But I, because there was no group or anything. It was just a bunch of nurses taking photographs. And I guess because I had a little bit of skill as a photographer from just mucking around even, um, some of the photos were okay. But I guess I've been doing that for a lot longer than I've been a heartfelt photographer. But I have been a heartfelt photographer about 11 years now. Right, right. So can you can you explain because not everyone listening to this will understand the organisation Heartfelt for a start, and can you also include in that um, where it it fits into the healing process? Because my initial feelings back when we were doing this work as a as a, a you know, lab looking at Polaroids and that was how is this helpful? You know, like like it didn't feel right at the time. It felt sort of voyeuristic and complicated. But you remember I'm. I'm the numpty in this conversation and you can explain <laughs> it to me and treat me that way, please. <laughs> oh, gee, um, it's a great question. So Heartfelt is uh, um, Australian and New Zealand-wide association and it's a voluntary group who of professional photographers who photograph um, babies who are stillborn, extremely premature or have a terminal or life-threatening illness and sometimes... Um, 
it'll be in their last days, hours, and sometimes it'll be after they've died. So yes, for a lot of people, that's quite a confronting thing to think about. It's been clearly documented in literature research these days that photography does make a difference to families. And I think it goes, there's a few things. I think that um, families sometimes think they'll forget their babies, what they look like over time. And so having a, a photographic memory of their babies reassures them and, and comforts them um, that that won't happen. I also think that in the in the the terrible haze of um, trauma and grief, they don't they don't they don't have anything to hang on to and we find particularly mums but maybe some dads too actually will get a little photo album of images and they'll have it in their handbag and they'll open them up regularly and look at them and they'll share them with other people. And, and in that sharing, they are processing their grief. They are acknowledging that their baby existed and lived and, and here they are. Um, and those things do make a difference to moving grief forward, for want of a better word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a process, yeah. right? It is a process and having images of their babies makes that process, um, it, it's healing in that process. Yeah, and no. not all parents take it up. You know, it's, I guess for me, I'm all about um, choice and really wanting all families that have to go through these awful, sad things um, to have a choice about whether they want photos or not. Do you have a sense of... Um of a proportion of, uh, in your experience, that would take it up? No, I, we don't. And that's, that would be a really interesting kind of statistic to have for us because I don't know, all I know is that when I contact people over time, I, I hear some people say to me, I wish we knew about your service 12 months ago or six years ago because um, we didn't know. And that breaks my heart. But it's not an easy thing to go public with. Um, yeah. You know, we do our best um, when we can. And when people ask me what I do, I always include heartfelt in that process. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know how many families are missing out yeah. and I, or how many families are being offered the service and not taking it up. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a t tricky one to and, – and I think – you and the gang at Hartfield do a wonderful job of, of not publicising it as a thing. Um, you know, t t t in, the, in the glorification or the patting on the back or the aren't we the best sort of thing. And within your community, yes, there's a lot of that call and response that you can see and there's a few little codes that you guys use to one another to let each other know and support one another and you can see that happening on social media. It's really very touching when you know what it is. Um, and it is important that this that it remains what it is because no one gets paid for any of this stuff. Um, um, you know, the, the lab as a production, we get paid for the work we do for it, uh, to be completely clear that, but the couples, the families pay nothing and they receive something in the post. They receive a beautiful little pack that has some photographs in USB and it's a 
you know, it's it's the story of that little bit of time you've had with them, which is which is you know really amazing. And the end, end results beautiful, and the feedback is always always good. And if I ever have to go to the post office and pick up packages that have bounced, and that happens, you know, where they don't get to the address or the address. I don't know whether people just don't want to open them or whether they move quickly. It, it, it happens. You know, there'd be one every couple of weeks that doesn't get yeah. to it. Do you have any concept of how much is being photographed? How many people are being photographed or how many events are being photographed a, a week? Well, we did about six, nearly 1,600 sessions in Australia and New Zealand last year. So in South Australia, of course, COVID put a big dent in that um, because we couldn't offer the service in all of the hospitals for for a time. Uh, And then there was a little transition period where odd things happened. Uh, And now we're just being allowed back into hospitals um, uh, for uh, sessions. But in South Australia, we do about 120, 130 a year. That's, that's um, remarkable. Yeah, yeah. That's remarkable, and you you got to imagine that the numbers of 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 people that could have taken up that haven't would be far greater than that. It would be. I would think so. I, you know, we go through quiet patches, but unfortunately, I know in those quiet patches that families are still having stillborn babies, um, and they're still having children um, that die. So yeah, I I don't I don't know. Um, However, you know, we just keep doing what we're doing and hopefully the word gets to families that the service is available. I mean, there are some criteria and so we have to be a little bit careful sometimes because some kids um, don't fall into the criteria. But, of course, we're a compassionate kind of service, so allowances are made. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. for sure. Um, And the support from the hospitals. I know there was years where it was difficult getting support from the particularly the administration side of hospitals has that how's that gone um i think it's 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 better um i i think that one of the problems is there's a lot of in the wards is there's a lot of staff turnover and so you know some staff just don't know that we exist and so i try every year to go into the hospitals at least once or twice a year just to remind them that we're here but um you know, there are problems within hospitals too that, that don't help, that can't be helped really. Um, we just got to try and work around them. Yeah, yeah. yeah and so the, yeah. Pand- the pandemic has um, made it in, in next to impossible because you physically some hospitals said no one else and some said, yes, you're, you're okay still or how did that work? Um, oh, look, interstate, it was a bit different, Paul. I know that um, some of the photographers were... Getting getting up in PPE gear and and doing some sessions for s- sort of specific circumstance, but um, that wasn't going to happen here in South Australia, and um, I completely un- coming from a medical background, I get it. You know, I mean, we were are uh, extraordinary, like extraordinarily lucky in South Australia that COVID really hasn't. Um, hit as hard as we thought it would. Um, but I was very aware that if I was using PPE gear for photography, maybe somebody else was missing out on it just from a personal point of view. And I wasn't, I would, I don't, 
it wasn't didn't sit well with me. So um, there was a period for you know probably three or two and a half, three, four months where we didn't do any sessions, but the nursing staff were taking photos um, in the hospitals. And this is a training program, isn't there? Some of them did amazing work, and it was really lovely to see them come up um, on our private groups. Um, was really heartening, and they did a yeah. great job. Yes, there is. We we do supply camera kits to hospitals for when we can't um, get to a session. And in South Australia, because our numbers are a bit lower, I really have only said no to one session in nearly 11 years. So we, we're pretty well serviced. But in the eastern states, it's a different story. They might have six sessions a day and there just aren't six photographers free uh, all the time. So hospitals get a camera kit and there's is a little bit of some training sheets and tips and tricks and um, um, and so they have a camera to use and it's got a printer attached to it where they can instantly print images out on the spot um, which is fantastic yeah that's wonderful yeah. I mean that's the objective yeah. I mean ignoring everything in the middle there which mm -hmm. you know all both of us in the photography industry kind of care a lot about it the end result is what we want in this circumstance yeah. we want the, yep. the families to have that that record and that that to go forward so needless to say that you guys are always looking for photographers as well you're always you know yes although game. in south australia because we don't do so many sessions sometimes we you know i can't i can't i can't um get all the photographers doing um, sessions as often as I'd like but I don't want to complain about that at all because that's a good thing in some ways um, however yes I mean it's great to have photographers on the books and tonight and I guess the more we have the more reassured I am that somebody can do the session yeah 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 that's right um, yep. and is there, there must be a fair feeling of burnout too amongst the members where you know there's there's a lot of people who just end up doing it all like yourself and there are, Paul, and, I, you know, we try really hard to prevent that happen. I know that um, I do a lot of talking to people on the phone, um, you know, especially when they're new to it. Um, and, you know, most photographers have never been inside an intensive care unit, let alone seen a baby that's died. So it can be quite confronting. And preparing somebody for that is difficult um, because particularly, you know, their life experience um, I, I usually know that, so I work around that. But I think it's really important for them to have a place to debrief and a safe place just to um, let it all out. Um, and I, I think we do it very well here. It's Again, it's harder in the eastern states because they've got a huge number of photographers, huge numbers of sessions, but we do make a concerted effort to try and look after our um, our photographers. There is a online um, uh, counselor, a twenty four a twenty four seven service because we're a twenty four seven service, and some some sessions can be confronting. Death is confronting sometimes, um, and we just yeah try and manage it the best we can. Um, yeah. Give people a break. Um, you know, I have some of the girls that do three or four or five in a row sometimes, um, or maybe three or four, um, and I'm conscious of 
trying to break that up and giving them a bit of a rest. And most of their girls feel really, because they are all girls at the moment. Anyway, I was going to ask that. Yeah, they're mostly women in, in Australia. I don't know what the breakup is, but I could only name maybe four or five male photographers. It's probably 10 or 11 out there, but yeah. Um, and oh, I lost my train of thought. But um, yeah, no, it was yeah, about we look, burnout and yes, we, talking, we, yeah. we try and look after people and try and watch for burnout. Um, and, and I was going to say that I think the girls here are pretty happy that they, they know that it's okay to say no and they know it's okay to call me up and just say, you know, can you listen? And I do. Um, yeah. Oh, gosh, it must be a, I can imagine there might be some sense of guilt around missing a session, not being able to make a session. That's what it's Very about, much isn't it? so. It is. Oh. It really is. And I, I try to say to people, like, you know, you have a life and, and we can't always be there for people in need and it's okay to say no. Yeah. Um, you, you, somebody else will fill in the gap. Um, yeah. yeah. That's amazing. Um, but look, it's, it's not. we're not talking about heartfelt. We're talking about you and, and heartfelt. And <laughs> it is a big part of my life, though. It, it is a big part <laughs> of your okay. life. And I, yeah. I will speak to Gavin one day because I think, um, you know, as the sort of person who wrangled it into heartfelt from from, from what it was and for his boundless energy, uh, <laughs> it's worth he's, having a He's chat. amazing. He really, he really is. is extraordinary. Yeah. He, yeah, he is. He is. But, um, you know, you know, flipping that, uh, you know, you've been here through it all, encouraging heartfelt through the session. And I think it's not anyone's organisation; it's everyone who's involved's organisation. And that's the the beauty of it, and also probably the challenge of it too, because, you know, all these. You know, all the herding cats sometimes comes to mind, I'd imagine. <laughs> you know, where you're trying to get all these people with strong, passionate ideas orbiting the right planet, you know. <laughs> Just mix it works metaphors. really well. It yeah. does work really well. And I guess it's because we've got a common theme Yes. That behind us, even if we're very different people. It's actually yeah. quite funny sometimes. Um, but And they're an, a, an amazing bunch of people, I I love them all. <laughs> does black does black humour run through the group? Or? Oh hell yeah, yeah. Really? Well, black humour's run through my life for a very very long time, <laughs> um, and so when they use a bit of black humour, sometimes they go oh, and I say to them, it's okay. That's how we manage these difficult circumstances is with black humour, yeah. and it's all right. Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. So y- you. At that, at some stage, you through that process, you were photographing families as well as at at risk yep. children and and the likes, and and you you, you made yourself into a, a family photographer, and you did you know you, you do beautiful work and that sort of thing. But then you 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 kind of couldn't shake this idea of helping people with their grief and and end of life. Is that is that what happened next? Um, I guess when I left nursing and I found photography and then I found heartfelt I just thought there was there was more to it I I had a very strong interest in when I was working as a nurse in memory making for families long before it became a a sort of a thing it's very big in the dying space these days um you know I I've got a funny story. I sourced some alginate to try and make um, – we made hand moulds and foot moulds of some of the, the little ones. And um, 
30, 30 years ago, I couldn't, I couldn't source it. The dentist wouldn't give it to me. And um, I found this lady in Queensland who would, would give me some. And she used the, the alginate to mould penises and vaginas for her clients. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> I know. And, and when she knew what it was for, she was, you know, she almost gave it to me. So that was a beautiful story, but quite funny. Anyway, and so because I always had that slant in my nursing, I always went towards the children that were really sick and dying or had died. I wasn't sort of frightened of it. Um, I think because I had a, a, a family who didn't deny it. We talked about it. My dad was a GP. My mum was a nurse. We didn't, uh, you know, it wasn't something we talked about all the time, but when it came up, it was just accepted as part of life. And so when my nursing career ended and my photography, I decided I was doing some weddings and I just didn't feel comfortable with the fit with my values in life. And so I, I looked for something else and that's when I went out into the world and found the end-of-life guide, I call myself. So the other names are death doula, end-of-life companion, death midwife is used overseas. And it's basically a role um, that serve, provides a non-medical service to people who are dying and their families, um, supporting and educating about end of life, even when people are well, helping them plan for death because it's going to happen to all of us. None of us are going to escape. Um, and within that, there is a component of photography that I would love to do more of, but of course end of life photography and, and that would include funerals and you know photographing people at home who are sick it it's such a beautiful part of life although be it very very sad um and I just feel like certainly in this day and age you know we photograph our food we photograph everything so why wouldn't we include the last part of our life as part of that story you used the word before and it is about story and um yeah so that sort of photography is what I advertise on my um my photography site these days is making those memories for families at end of life but I also do a component of different kind of service work um around end of life That's which I have I, another website for yeah yeah I saw that I I I, I hopped across and and um and had a, had a good look and a read and it was a very moving uh, site you know you've got a lot of information there and stuff that you don't you know who thinks about this stuff this is what you probably hear from all your people you know who thinks about this and, and why I think I the idea of um you know death photography uh, came in a, in my orbit when we in 2012 we ran a call 2011 we ran a competition and um Hillary Wardoff won the competition with Die Like a Dog, which was um, a project where she photographed her friend's last day um, with her, surrounded by friends. And, you know, like, it was just a, a total... I know, yes. ...easy, easy thing to, to, to pick as a winner out of all of the potential exhibitions because uh, it was just... It just stops you in your tracks. Um, and I wonder, you know, I... You know, I'm quite an emotional person and I've been through a few of these, um, you know, uh, watching people die things and they've never, never 
I'm strangely attracted to it in some ways as well, to the emotional side of it. Um, do you find yourself, you know, some people are adrenaline junkies and, you know, people like to, to feel that stuff. Is that a part of what's going on with you, do you think? That, you, you know, you like the, that, that deep feeling of emotion, that connection that's happening then and that you can actually help people and you can walk them through this pretty ordinary valley, you know, this pretty ordinary part of their life that some people see as ordinary, but I see you don't see it as ordinary. It's, it's, it's no, the, the and big no, I don't stop. either, Paul. I think it's an extraordinary part of life. It's you know, birth is too. Uh, birth and death have loads of similarities between them, and we have all this support and care and education and around birth, but not so much at end of life. Um, but I don't, I don't know that that's what attracts me to it I'm a really emotional person too and I've seen great sadness oh when a mother makes the noises that their babies do when they die is something that lives with me forever and the emotion of it it's, it's a really interesting question I haven't actually thought about before and maybe there's an element of truth in it. I'd have to give it a little bit more thought. I guess I'm just passionate about trying to enable people to have their preferred death. And and in that, there needs to be an exploration of our mortality. And And I think that's the part that people get stuck on. They, yeah. they don't know or they don't want to think of anybody's life ending, particularly their own. Yeah. yeah and and yeah. I, you know, I, I ask you the question, Paul, I know you're the interviewer, but, um, no, you know, have, have you given thought to your own death and um, preparation for that? I'm struggling with my birthday next month. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, honestly, this, just to let, it's not about me, okay, this is about you, but there's a part of me that wants a big party and everyone to tell me how great I am. And there's another part of me that doesn't want anything to do about it. And Go and with the big party. I can't. And I let just, people I tell you. Don't like what, that. Why? I don't know. And I went to I I've I've given one, two, three or four eulogies. No. Five eulogies I've done. So I have something to do with it that it interests me with death. And I don't know. You know, I don't know what it is. I know it's definitely um, the emotional side of it. Um, you know, it's definitely a, a really lovely big thing. And I'm always, mm. I'm really disappointed if I go to, this sounds stupid, if I go to a funeral and there's no one standing up from the family who wants to say something, it's really, you know, I find that uh, disappointing is the, is the best is the best. Mm. The, the best thing for it to be and I'm annoyed and you know like because I go oh, it's not that hard but it really is very difficult to stand up as an amateur you know and well do that. those are big emotions Paul and I, I think you know some families are just so overwhelmed at the time of death that they just can't do it but I think if you go out of the family a little bit somebody there will be able to speak on behalf of the family um and I think in this day and age we are now, as we are, I think it's coming, this wave of 
death literacy is a word that's thrown about a little bit, but it really yeah. just means understanding and being literate with death. Um, people are wanting to do their own funerals. So they're wanting to make the eulogies and they're wanting to make the eulogies really personal and not just mum was born here and then she went here to school and she did this and she did that. It's more about mum valued her family and she loved going to school and doing dressmaking. I don't know, I'm just making this up as I go along, but yep. a much more personalised kind of approach to the funeral memorial kind of way. Um, and I think that's a, that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. No, I really do. And I think it is that the, the, there's some that I've been to that are really remarkable events and, you know, you get you come away from it with a different perspective on life. I mean, I'm not suggesting that you come away and you click in your heels and go, I'm going to live like a, you know, I'm going to live to the life to the fullest sort of thing. But you go, well, there's a wonderful story and there's a wonderful story and there's someone I've known that was a part and this was their story. And, and I think that's what happens in that world. And I think what I'm, I'm also interested in is, like, photography has played a part in this a lot. My, my grandfather used to be asked to go and photograph people because they were never photographed in life. So they were stood up. You know, they'd tip the casket up and they'd open it up and, um, you know, they would have done their best to make the person look as alive as possible and that was a photo that they had of them. Uh, sometimes there was, uh, that was done for, for other cultural reasons because other family couldn't come to see and there was this whole thing, yeah, let's make sure they're dead. That's why we're having an open casket, just to make sure that when I poke them that this is not a joke or a ruse or something. So there was all those reasons and I know photography then and movies and film and everything that came along visually, it got us that understanding and that acceptance because we stopped having people die next to us. We, we, they yeah. went to another room. We took dying away from the home. We put it That's into right. hospitals and now we, we add residential aged care facilities to that. You know, years ago, mum and dad would stay in the home because funeral homes didn't exist. But now somebody dies, you know, some people just get straight on the phone and say, can you pick up mum and dad? So there are so many options that families can take now that they don't know about. We still can keep our loved ones at home. There's no law against it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and you were, yeah, I read on your website five days. We separated ourselves, separated ourselves so much from yeah. death that, yeah, we don't know what to do now. Yeah. I saw on your website five days is – is legally what you can do as far as well, In actual fact, in South Australia, the law doesn't dictate any time. Oh, <laughs> uh, no. The it, other states are different. But, of course, um, in the work that people do, we, we've found we've, for the most part three days is the point where most families will be willing to say goodbye. And I guess that's the big thing. It's when families are ready to let go of the body is the right time to let go of the body. And so that's if that's two hours after somebody's died, then that's okay if the family – but a lot of families feel like their loved one's been taken from them um, rather than them giving their loved one over into the care of somebody else. Yeah. And I think that extra time that people take after death with their loved one can be a very – again, a very healing, a very beautiful – time um but people don't know they can do that and of course some people think oh no way but um yeah my my I, I, of it. 
Yeah, I'm, I am. I definitely fall into that trap. I remember, you know, those people that I did see die or to see just die, the amount of time, I, I don't know. It just, I think I was afraid of having that image being the last, the memory of them. And it's funny, it doesn't stick as the memory of them because thankfully photographs, that they, they, it does help you bring other I- images into your mind. And I think that's what we're afraid of. I don't want to be remembered this way. That's an old, old sort of term. A dear friend of mine, um, and just on on this idea of of having the having the body around, a dear friend of mine is New Zealander, and he's a while he's a white New Zealander, not a a Maori. He um, he worked very um, uh, very deep into the community and legal services supporting them. And when he and when his father died, so I'm talking about this, my friend's father. When his father died, the the local communities took his body and for a, I don't know, I think it was a period of a week or so, it moved from longhouse to longhouse where the family sung to the body. Oh, and, how beautiful. You know, like, it doesn't get any better than that, does it? No, it um, doesn't. But that's a cultural thing, right? And culturally that was a part and they understand that and it's, and it's been a long time since it's been a part of our culture. Uh, it is. sort of thing. And I guess that's what this sort of end of life guide all the movement oh it's not really a movement but role tries to um bring forth um because that's a fan that's a beautiful story and we have just completely removed death from our lives um pushed it back into funeral homes and hospitals as i said before and i think i honestly think and i say it all the time it sounds so daft i think the world would be a better place if the western world could come to terms with death. It would be a better world. And I was interested, Paul, in your comments about when you leave a funeral that you thought was really great, that you said you don't think that you'll go out and live life to your fullest. Well, See, I don't think it, when I got... it doesn't drive me to do that differently. It's not like it's okay. like a warning, like, oh, my God, this could be me. It was not that. It was okay. the emotional okay. wave was so good. And yeah, the love yeah. and the feeling, you know? Yeah. And, and so I, I want to get that kind of love and feeling into, like, how can we live our lives to the full, fully, presently, now, while we are alive and healthy, and, and not have to have a terminal diagnosis to see <laughs> the colour, to see the beauty, yeah. to feel the love? You know, that, that was – and to some degree – COVID-19 has done a little bit of that because the way we've been able to grieve and the way things have happened have changed a lot and we've had to fall back on ritual and think about different ways to support grieving people and different ways to be with our dying. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that's if, – if we could do that, we would all – I just think we'd be nicer to each other. We'd be kinder. It's not rocket science. Yeah. No, I. one of our staff, their, their mother passed during this process, during COVID, and they couldn't have a funeral. And I was just, you know, heartbroken. And they lined the streets of their their street and get, and some people reported them for not social distancing, <sighs> you, know, as the, you know, as the car came by. And, you know, like, really? Do we have to yeah. do this now? Um, no. And... I look, they found their way of doing it and it doesn't stop them. And she was a person that would have had 400 plus people to the, 
to the to the funeral. It would have been a big old thing. And they're going to have their big old thing. It's just it's just delayed a little bit. Um, so yeah. you're right. It's kind of boarded up a little bit into our faces. Um, I, I, I think sometimes though, and I worry about photography's role in this, where what you say about being present, um, one of the things that we do is we try and put on suits, outfits, attitudes, roles, um, disguises to be someone who we're, we're not. And photography plays a really big role in that and it has through the years. And it's, you know, you look at your selfies in the retouching software and we hold the camera up high. Hell, my laptop's up at eye level. Yours is even higher so that we, not suggesting you've got a double chin, but we do these things to be someone who we're not, right? And photography yeah. has a lot to answer for for that. And I think it, photography provides this wonderful exposure therapy and image making in general as far as helping us understand their situations. And I think people's reality TV in some ways, in some ways is helping us a little bit with with being closer to reality, but it's not. It's mixing it up and messing it up, isn't it? It's, it's hard. It but is. I understand what birth photography has done has made... Uh, helped us to understand birth more. We're not no longer sitting in a waiting room smoking cigars, clapping other dads on the back. You know, you know, not a lot of us are having um, waking up with a baby. You know, like my beautiful mother said, I was wonderful. I went to sleep and I woke up and I had you. And and I thought, well, that's that's her birth story and she loves it. But it's just a pretty rare one these days. You know, it's and and in some ways she could feel frowned down upon by other people's birth stories. Uh, which are you know much more involved. So I think photography in some ways has opened, and the work Victoria Berwick Mary's done, and 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 the, and the the group around Australian Birth Dogs, the Midwives Association, it's done a wonderful job of cracking that egg and thus seeing everything. I, and, and I gather that's what you're trying to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it does. It, it it'll crack down some barriers because Hillary's exhibition. You know, what did you feel when you saw it? Does, like I, if if you have an image of a dying person, what you've got to be thinking about something. You know, oh, it, my it, God. It, it's a reflective process, just like yeah. the birth photography. You look at it, and sometimes you're shocked, and sometimes you go, "Oh, this is beautiful. This is what birth looks like." Yes, exactly the same thing I'm trying to do. Yeah. So in other words, it's taking that, it's it's bringing it's taking those that clothing off that we put on to hide and pretend something else is going on because I think that's like the root of most mental illness is most people trying to be something they're not. Um, and, you know, you take that off and you show it for what it is and you have a very different, like it's acceptance, isn't it? It's like, yeah. oh, that's what it is. And, and that's what a dead body looks like or that's what somebody who's dying looks like. And sometimes it isn't pretty but it never was. It's just that we've never seen it, that it's normal. This is how it is. It's, yeah. a, it's interesting that we, you know, when we are at a funeral and we have an open coffin, you know, um, often they'll have makeup and they'll have lots of things done to make them look alive. And, you know, you've got to question why do we do that? That's a good thing because I've, I, you know, I'm, I'm definitely, af I'm definitely afraid of open caskets. <laughs> I definitely like it's not, it's not a boogeyman thing, but I just it's no, something no, no. that doesn't. Of course, me. because because we've ne we haven't seen it. Yeah, we're frightened about what it is. So if we can photograph it, 
in a beautiful way, then we do a couple of things. You know, we perhaps try and make people just a little bit more aware of how the process looks and how a dead body looks. And we can also see the love and um, closeness with families um, or perhaps even the stark aloneness of death sometimes. You know, like there's a whole huge area. But, of course, approach well you don't approach families for families need to really approach you um and I don't do a lot of that work and if I do that work I don't necessarily have permission to share it um so there are a few things with it but I you know I I think it is important it's one thing that can break down our barriers that's really interesting and and just from a a nuts and bolts practical perspective is it it's forgive me for saying it, but does it pay the bills? <laughs> um, no. Uh, my work as an end of life guide when I'm supporting and servicing families without photography is a paid gig. And if I had loads of work, it would pay the bills, but I don't have loads of work yet. Um, and the photography side of it, it doesn't pay my bills. Uh, and I don't know. There is a guy in New South Wales, um, I think his name's John Slater, who specifically does funeral photography. And I don't know whether it pays his bills either, but he seems to have quite a, a good business going in that sense. I'm not really sure. But there are people out there doing it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I know we get asked every now and then, and we certainly get a lot of – like I've just had one just before our call, and I've got it sitting there – Someone's passed. You've got the, t- the funerals tomorrow, and I need to get this picture scanned and added. Or a, maybe it might be fifty pictures. It might be a slideshow. It might be something to sit on the casket. It might be. It might be. It might be. This is a big, you know, not a big thing of what we do, but it's a regular, consistent thing. So you know, if you consider that aspect of it as part of this whole process, because that's the celebratory side of things, if you can get somehow in the way of and I'm not trying to make business models here, you know, that's a hobby of mine, but if you can get in the way of, of <laughs> you know, with connections through funeral homes, but then funeral homes are not particularly, they're not the, the people that you really want to work with, are they? Uh. Um, look, I know, I've, I know some nice people, great people in the funeral industry, um, and one of them is very encouraging of photography, but I think, of course, for them, it, it's another thing, and... I don't want to bag the funeral industry at all. It's an really. industry. Let's just take. Let's but, not talk about not bagging. It's a business, right? And well, what I'd, money so produces would, a certain thing. Yeah. Um, so what I would say about the business is that within their business model, photography doesn't come into it because it's externally paying somebody else to do it. Yep, 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 yep. yep. And funeral, the business model. Some of them are, you know, the added extras are the things that bring in the money, and for somebody to to charge, I don't know, $1,000 to do a funeral, that would be $1,000 that they're not going to get. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it's um, a business. And look, you've got to so, take the funeral yeah. side of it. It's an industry. Yes. It's an industry. It is. It is. It and, is. Yeah. And, and one thing humans and are really good at doing is <laughs> is you're making a business out of something. And tell me, uh, and I, I know it has it is so far from happening in your world and in the heartfelt world and everything like that, but do you think that the funeral photography or the home funeral thing will become an industry one day and a business and therefore maybe at the, 
be be at the mercy of these forces of money that we we have that humans tend to bring into it? Oh, look, Paul, there are a couple of really cool models around, and I um, they're not. I guess they're mostly not for profit, but Tender Funerals in Port Kembla, I think it's Port Kembla, is a community based funeral home, and so and they've been around for a while. They I think they did up an old fire department with oh, community wow. money and. Families run the funerals with assistance from the people that work in the funeral home. Um, and, and they would encourage this sort of natural approach to death if people want that. Um, natural Grace Funerals in Melbourne are another company that, you know, they have rooms for families to keep their loved ones for however long they want afterwards. Uh, under the supervision of, of their staff. Now, families are paying for this service, and that is a for-profit. But it's, it's – and there's a couple of other places that are doing similar things. So I think it's coming because I think people, particularly as the baby boomers die, which is us, um, they're wanting more autonomy over their own death and their own after-death care. And – I, I see that the traditional funeral approach, it, it, they will have to have other options. Otherwise, they'll, they won't have a significant chunk of the market. Isn't that interesting? That force of money is, is also really good because it does, it goes, well, we're not getting so much of this work anymore because these people are doing it for nothing. We need to change our business model so that we can then take this sort of work on. So... And, I, you know, I wonder too, uh, just looking at what COVID has produced and the government support has produced in this environment, and then you you echo that out to the fact that one day robots are going to be doing, you know, a lot of things we do, um, particularly in manufacturing, that we're not going to have jobs and for-profit's going to be a really interesting idea that it might <sighs> be a quite a rare thing. We're going to be getting our money and sustenance and everything from you know, uh, universal living wage is my favourite thing, oh. And and then people are going to do cool things with their spare time. They're not all going to sit around and hit the bong or, or drink the wine. You know, they're going to do stuff and they're going to make yeah. interesting things. They're going to they're gonna be cr- make crocheted beanies with, you know, custom ears on them or whatever the oh hell you God. want. That is so weird. I've just had a conversation with my girlfriend who has ordered a custom beanie with ears on it for a child. Crazy. Snap. Look, Paul, yeah, I like who knows what the future's going to hold. Um, and, yeah, that would be cool. But in this industry, like all the care industries won't change because yes, people. I don't think a robot's going to no, have the capacity no, no. to care and no, think no, no, that no. kind of stuff. I completely agree with you, but monitoring. There and, will be, yes. It'll you know, be monitoring different. legal services. Um, really different. So many elements to what we do, and you know, monitoring alone. I mean, I've got an Apple Watch that if I trip over, it rings Kate. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sounding <laughs> I old. Day for that one. Sound, sounding old now, but they're great. Like what? And it gets my heart rate, and and I haven't got it worked out how to do it, but it gives an ECG as well. And so that monitoring side of it, I think, you know, is is a good thing, and and perhaps then, you know, end of life monitoring will be a thing. But yes, you're right. See, Paul, that's another thing. Like you're monitoring your health. Like we have this huge push towards health 
and in the end, it's a it's a it's a push towards longevity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we get into the problems of, well, we are going to die. Yeah. When are we going to die? Yeah, that's a whole nother topic. Of no, no, no. I I, I get you. I get you. You know, aging. I am privileged to be aging. Yes. Like. I see so many that don't never age, that never breathe their first breath. Like aging is cool. It sucks sometimes when you've got tendonitis in an elbow and a dodgy knee, but I can get on and live my life. I'm going swimming with the cuttlefish tomorrow. Well, How, what's the alternative? You know? Well, the alternative is being dead. That's so right. I'm going to live my it life sucks. right now. Exactly. <laughs> well, I don't know that it does suck, Paul. No, no, what's, did... what, what sucks is the not, the not accepting the fact you're here. You know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, hey, exactly. Hey, I just lost your yeah. camera, Helen. Oh, goodness me. You're right. I'm definitely not a technophobe. No, no, you're doing great. Anyway, good. yes. Yeah, no, I don't I don't think, I think I, I, what I'm saying is what sucks is that the sense of desperation, and I'm not wearing oh, this, yes. these senses because I'm afraid. And I, look, I don't want to die, but what I want to do is I, I don't want to extend the end of my life when I'm lying in a bed. I want to extend the middle of my life right now. I agree. Yes. You know, and yes. that's the that's the hope, the intention of it all. Um, interesting, interesting. Well, look, I, this has been our hour. We're we're really cool. close to wrapping up. What I want to ask you before is maybe one of the final questions. What's next for Helen Roberts? What what do you what do you want to do next? <laughs> cuttlefish swimming with a cuttlefish tomorrow. Yes, Got that. can't wait. And I'm taking a camera. Um, oh, great. Oh, that's a big question, Paul. Um, I think I'd really like to develop my end-of-life care work and um, across the board, so helping healthy people get ready for dying um, and making a bit of a plan right up to um, assisting families to manage the death of a loved one at home or um, even after death. So I think that part of my life will expand and I'd really like for the photography component of that to expand too. I just, you know, I don't know how the balls will fall, but, uh, I mean, they say if you – I think it's action. So I am doing some action at the moment, but sometimes, you know. So that's one thing. Is there room for – using photography to promote the idea. I mean, you're recording this stuff, but it could also drive it potentially. Absolutely. I'd love to follow a family and have an exhibition um, just to to get things out there and to drive it forward. It's um, a tough ask, though, for any... any I should come and talk to the marketing expert, shouldn't I? Oh. <laughs> you. Well, I'm like, don't even, don't even think about it. Like, I, you can, it, all the stuff that we talk about with marketing and ideas, it's fine until you say we're playing, we're, we're pointing some family who might hundred percent be on with the idea. Like, they might love the idea, and that's fine. But getting someone and asking them, "Hey, I'm thinking of doing this. How would you like your end of life to be on display?" Um, I've, I've told my parents that they're probably going to be. Um, <laughs> be on it, yeah, <laughs> and they're okay with that. I don't know what my siblings will think, but anyway, we'll see, we'll see, because they're in that, getting into their eighties now. So, yeah, yeah but anyway, it's, it's been really lovely to talk to you, Paul. Yeah, it's been as awesome always. talking to you. 
Thanks a lot, Paul. Appreciate your friendship and kindness. Thank you. You're okay. See ya. Well, that friends was Helen. <laughs> that sounds awfully like ta-da! <laughs> <laughs> I I like the um the that idea of not um of not hating getting older. Oh, it's just beautiful. Because isn't it? you know, I we had a friend. Well, you've you've got, you've really hundred percent embraced that you've given up dyeing your hair, which I know it's. I it's, gave up dyeing so it's like my a hair small about five thing. years. It ago. sounds like a small thing. No, it is not. But when it I gave up dyeing thing. my hair, and I told people, so I'm forty three for the record. Yes, I'm old enough to be your mother. No, I will not adopt you because. We don't have enough Seriously, inheritance. She yells too much. You do not want you to do not be, want to be my child. You do not want to be my child. Ask my children. Um, but yeah, I so I gave up dyeing my hair about um, five, four years ago, because I knew that I wanted really long hair, and I knew that by the time I was in my like fifties, I wanted really long hair that was grey, and I um, you got to start. You got to just start doing that because if you want really short hair, that's grey, easy. Just pff, hack it all off one day and you're done. But if you want really long hair, you have to start way, way out. And I remember when people started asking me, and I started telling friends, like good friends who were women, um, that I was going to stop dyeing my hair, and they reacted like I was having an affair, like I was announcing it to the world, and that they were just they were just dumbfounded with shock. And, you know, the reality is that there's, there's nothing, nothing better in the world other than you, my love, has oh, happened to me than getting older. Getting older is the best thing. Like I look at these 20 – and that's one of the things Helen and I talked about at the party. I look at 25-year-olds and I just think, oh, poor sweetheart, in a minute you're going to be so much happier. Like they have no idea – 43 is like glory. I can't wait till I'm 53 and I hope to Christ I get there. And and every grey hair and every line shows that I've managed to last that much longer. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. I I want all the Botox and all the filler and no. all – Yes, I do. I no, want it – no. hey, 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 I'm allowed to want things I don't get. Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> Thank so you. T- hey, tell me, tell me, do you, are you saying that dyeing your hair is a bad thing? No. You do whatever the hell you want. Like I have done all sorts of things to my body that other people wouldn't do and that's my choice. I was thinking of dyeing my beard. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, seriously I wasn't. There's nothing – There was a member of the photographic lab industry who had a penchant for dyeing his beard. I don't know. And he was the Donald Trump of the industry and uh, (laughs) I don't know if he's still dyeing his beard but it would be pretty great if he stopped. Anyway, now I'm bitching about the competition which I'm not allowed to do. Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. You ready for your moment of colour? Oh, crap, yes. Okay, what are you going to do now? How are you going to do this? What You don't have a book? No, I don't have a book. Do you have a plan? I had a really interesting experience <coughs> on Friday. We had one of our staff bring their 12-year-old boy in who's interested in photography and wanted to know why the stuff on his screen doesn't look like his, <laughs> his prints. And Him doing, and everybody else! I know, he's doing it as a science project or an art project. I can't quite work out where it fits into his schooling, but definitely he got time off the school so that he could come in and have a tour and talk about it and um, get a – I mean, he wanted a tour in general, but this was about – so I'm thinking to myself as he's sitting in front of me, how do I explain to a 12-year-old – Okay, I'm ready. 
So you want to hear how I'm I did it? I'm already sitting down. I don't have to sit down this No, time. no, we both are. I know. We're on these how stools nice. and we're couldn't. Yeah, you know, I still want to be on the sofa. I want you to be on the sofa. I want to take my shoes off. <laughs> I want to be curled up in a ball, you know. So what I said to... Um, what did you say to this young, kid? impressionable boy? It's really cool. I said, you know when you go and your parents buy you your first colouring inset? Pencils. Pencils. Colouring inset. That sounds really baby-like. He's yeah. 12. Yeah. Pencils. I said, you know, the Faber-Castell... Yeah. series and there's one that may be like 20 centimeters wide and it's got how many pencils would be in that probably 30 pencils or something yeah something pencils. Like and then you see the big one that's like oh 128 yeah and there's maybe one that's three levels in a drawer oh baby now yeah, you're talking yeah. my language so so in those sets typically they have a, like a range of colors right that's what it's all about sometimes though they have really really bright colors and some of them have lots of grades between colours. And the way you think about a screen is it is one of those sets. Like it's one of those sets of Faber-Castell. Maybe the 20 set, it may be the 50 set. Depending on the quality of screen you've got, uh, it may be one of the larger sets. But more importantly, it's going to be one of those sets. And this is this is very broadly speaking and very in some ways very much... So metaphorically speaking, we're not talking about there's only 20 Are you telling colors. me there are no pencils in my screen? There's no pencils in your screen. You're dead right. <laughs> I'm sorry. Am I mansplaining? I always feel that this is oh, a mansplaining segment. Listen, you're not mansplaining unless I say you are. Okay. All right. I, I'll get, keep going. This is not the mansplaining. Oh, we could make it the mansplaining section. We oh, could make it like we could don't. have a – I don't want to be that person. Ha- oh, darling – you're not that person okay. all the time. Then let me get back to men's place. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 just think about it, right? Yeah, I'm thinking. We've got, you've got your, your problem is is you've got different devices. You've got a, the back of your camera. You've got your phone. This is where you're going to be able to look at photos, right? You're going to look at photos on the back of your camera. You're going to be able to look at them on your phone. You're going to look at them on your screen. Maybe you've got a laptop you're going to look at them on. And then you're going to print them. And, and they're all going to look different. Right. And printing them is not that different from looking at the screen. Hang on. Can we just go back for one second? Yes. I just want to clear something up yes. for our listeners. Yes. I have had more than one occasion to have a conversation that goes as following with a client. Yes. So I was checking my scans on my phone and the colour isn't great. And I say, hang on a sec, don't check your scans on your phone because it's not calibrated and it's not. Oh, no, but it's a standard. Is an iPhone screen the same colour on all the screens? All iPhone screens. No, 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 they won't. And we're not talking about model to model. We're talking about off the production line, maybe five minutes after the one that was my last made was made. Uh, you know, you're paying for an iPhone. Let's say you buy a fancy one. But isn't it also a profile thing? Because there's no – if you open it in Dropbox, is Dropbox applying the correct profile that's been applied to the file? Um we don't know. Well, there is profiling, calibration. There's a whole lot of other stuff to it. And what I suggest we do is the next podcast episode. Because we're now going on to minute 475 about colour. No, it's not too bad. We're, we're, uh, we'll deal with that profiling, calibration as a, in our next episode, right? But this one, I just want to keep keep going with this idea of… Yeah, the pencils. Yeah, Sorry. The pencils. What no, I'm no. saying is don't – if you don't like your scans on your phone, yes. go home and look so on your computer. The, the point is what we're talking and about is complain. there are… There are different display sets. Uh, uh, there are different display devices. So screens, printers, 
phones, backer cameras, they are all a display technique, a display of some sort. And you've got to think of a print as the same sort of thing. Oh. And they're all different kind of printers uh, and they're all different kind of printed techniques. And each one of those has it's, it's like its own set of coloured pencils and there are no two sets of coloured pencils are the same. That's totally true because when you think about it, you know, your Faber-Castells are different from your – I can't remember any other names now all of a sudden. Yeah, I'm going blank water, too. What were the water ones? The water – Waterford, well, think of a, what about a pack of texters and well, a pack of thing. crayons. Yeah. You know, like they're, yeah, yeah. they're all different. And it's actually that's actually probably not a bad idea because the way a screen works compared to a print is as different as a texter would work to a pencil for the way it can put the colour. Yeah, like, or a crayon. The way it shows you the colour. Met- metaphorically, it's that far apart. Yeah. Because if you think about a screen, it's radiating the colours at you. They're glowing at you. Yeah. But to see a print the light in the room has to bounce off of that print and into your eyes. So they're very different. And the colour of the paper underneath the ink affects it Correct. as well. And, and the colour of the room that the light is bouncing off of, the colour of the lights. Some, aren't there some weird colours that you can only see in specific kinds of temperatures of light? Yes. And that because yeah. we've, we've got that fancy light box out the back where you check prints and that's where you can see that specific colour. Yes, but if you right. just take it out, to the sunlight, yeah. you can't see. Yeah, so there's different kind of uh, illuminators that can cause certain colours to change. That's called a, a, a metameric effect is where a, a certain colour will look different under different lights. Yeah. So there's a bunch of really complicated things that means that it's really hard to get right. So this pencil, ca- this pencil case idea, yeah. is that colour gamut? That's really what it is, is colour gamut. So yeah. the word gamut is... is the word colour gamut describes the total range of colours that can be seen with that device. So we think about the colour gamut of a high-quality display like an ISO colour edge display, which some wonderful person in the Facebook group said, oh, I've just saved up to $2,000. I can afford up to $2,000 on a screen. What do I buy? And I said, look, the best thing you can buy is an ISO colour edge whatever you can afford for your money in that range because mm-hmm. they are brilliant. What they are is a high-quality display that gives you a certain level of confidence that what you're seeing of your digital image file, once it's set up well, mm. and we can talk about that in later podcasts, but once that screen is set up well, you're seeing a view of that that image. Now, you're st- what the view you're seeing is one that the whole imaging industry has agreed is the best view possible. Mm. And when we use printers and we set them up and we, 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 we program them and calibrate them and use the kind of paper and inks that's necessary, it's set up to that same ideal that the imaging industry agrees is a great thing. So we'll come along we'll talk about what that means in future episodes. But what we're trying to get across to you now is there are different display devices and you have to understand that those differences have to be accounted for in your, when you're looking at things. And it's important as a person who's interested in photography and digital photography and digital work, and even even analog and prints from directly from negatives, that you understand that this world exists, that these problems exist, and that you need to try your best within them to solve these problems. Because that's part of being involved and if you're a professional photographer, it's part of being professional. If you're a professional print service like us, we have to take it extremely seriously. Yeah. So let's... Take this as the opening shot to this idea and then we'll discuss the finer points yep. going forward. Okay? Lordy. How much fun is that? Um, 
you know, it's interesting. <laughs> I don't you know. Are, I have, you don't like this stuff, do you? Oh, I don't know. I love it. No, it's great. It's great. Look, it's great because there. When I, it's when I think because I've been so steeped in it since the dawn of time, and that then once I have my uh moment, I'm like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> and it's when I have moments with clients where they I, – I think I think part of the problem is that I assume that – because I'm not a photographer, I assume that all photographers are like you. Like they all know everything about colour and everything about screens and everything about profiles and everything because they know everything about these other really complicated things you know about, like these bloody black boxes you guys look into and can magically make beautiful images from. Like I don't fucking understand how they work, but you all understand it, and so I assume they all know. You're talking all about stuff. cameras now, yes, I'm talking about cameras, and and so when I hear a photographer, and so I think that that's complicated because I think a lot of photographers feel like all other photographers know everything and they don't know anything, and I think actually the vast majority of photographers know a poofteenth of what they need to know about color and printing processes and everything else. And so it's always this kind of thing, don't people already know this? And then I have like, I remember talking to a woman on, on one of my tours where she was like, oh, all my images came back from you guys really, they were really dark. And I said, oh, okay, well, did you contact us because we do test prints and then we can talk about whether you set up. Anyway, we went through it all. Turns out she had her screen calibrated and she thought it looked too dark because she didn't like the way Safari looked. So she just upped the brightness on the screen manually. And then <laughs> was like really pissed off when all of the friends were really, really interesting. It's just, really common what you get though. Is, yeah, I know. It's nice to – I mean, I'm just laughing. We don't laugh. I'm just, no, I'm laughing listening to the story. But then if you stop and think about the logic of what's happening, yeah. it's actually really hard totally. to it's connect really that with It's really annoying when but your screen's too dark yeah. and, you're, so, and she probably so needs on. her glasses let's just, let's just stop. Let's just stop one sec there. The screen is too – the images are looking too dark on her screen. Forget the fact that she said her screen is too dark. Oh, no, she might have said her no, screen no, is too No, no, that's fine. Dark. I can't remember. It doesn't matter. But if it – no, no. She's seeing things on her screen that are too dark. So what does she need to do? She needs to lighten the images up, right? Yeah. She lightens them up. They'll also print lighter, Yeah. right? I, I'm not – I don't want to no, have a go at her in any way. This light. is a really I can't remember. No, no, no. But it was the you thing it right. where there was It's a very tricky a logic. Yeah. It's not, no, it's not a tricky logic. It's a very obvious logic when you pull away all the conversation and just think about what's happening. They're looking dark on a screen. Her prints are looking dark. Yeah. Right? Lighten them up yeah. and your prints will be lighter. Yeah, yeah. You know, so this is what we're trying I know, to but help you don't, people understand. You don't, I don't uh, – I don't know. I think – I think a lot of this stuff we think people know about. Yes, and they don't. And they don't. That, I think that's my that's point. That's why I think it's a good thing to have as our moment of colour. Yeah. It's just to talk about this stuff because I, I, I enjoy it. And, and seeing that wonderful uh, kid who was just the brightest button I've ever met and, as he in a 12-year-old so boy. so adorable. I wanted to rip that kid out of school and give him a job. <laughs> he actually asked for a job. <laughs> it's, it's so close. Anyhow, um, We'll speak to you all uh, next week for episode 14. Episode 14. Yeah. This who is episode in, who, 13. This is Helen in, Roberts. Have you even worked out who you're interviewing? Nope. Right. We wish you all good luck. <laughs> Happy June. Happy June? Yes, it's June. We're in June. It's almost the end of the financial year. Oh. Uh, good luck, everybody, with your stock take. <laughs> we stock, they don't have stock take. Well, we should do. Everyone has to. Yeah, yes, what, is it, what stock are they going to take? Well, they They're going to go, I've got no, too many cameras. Well, they might need to look at their stock. I've got it's too many. It's part of your financial, end of financial years. Lightroom filters. 
could are be they all, filters? Are they, they actions? Be, I don't know. I don't know if you don't Whatever. need to count base for stock. <laughs> what do I stock take? I don't stock take anything. The whole do I? building has to. No, be I'm not doing that. You can help out. I'll go into my room and look at how many vintage items I but have. But it's not this next weekend. It's the week after. That's okay. the end of the energy. Anyway. All right. Good luck, everybody. We love you. Bye-bye. Sweet dreams. Bye.